Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. The cool shade of a tree is a welcome relief on a hot day. But in cities across the United States, tree cover is not equally distributed between neighborhoods. All cities experience the urban heat island effect, where cities are warmer than the surrounding rural areas due to the way urban surfaces, like parking lots and buildings, absorb heat. However, within cities themselves, some neighborhoods are hotter, and this discrepancy is often directly linked to urban tree cover. A recent study further linked today's hottest neighborhoods to the historic and inequitable practice of redlining. In this River Talk, the Cumberland River Compact's Route Nashville campaign manager, Meg Morgan, joins Dr. Jeremy Hoffman, chief scientist with the Science Museum of Virginia, to learn about his groundbreaking work on the connections between historic and inequitable redlining, urban heat, and urban trees, and the implications for how we make equitable, inclusive, and just decisions for our community moving forward. Well, welcome, Dr. Jeremy Hoffman. Thank you so much for talking with us today about trees and urban heat. We're delighted to have you. Um, Meg, thank you so much for including me in this very important conversation. I'm thrilled to talk about it. So we're recording this in late summer. So here where we are in Nashville anyway, it is still pretty hot. So let's jump right into this. So could you kind of give us a baseline understanding? What are the connections between trees and canopy cover percentage and urban heat? Well, first of all, you know, as you know, urban heat islands are areas in our cities or the whole city itself that based on how much of the influence of like human built surfaces, things like asphalt and brick and uh, wide cement roads and those sorts of things dominate the landscape such that their higher heat capacity actually absorbs more of the sun's energy throughout the day and then re-emits it back as heat into the air throughout the afternoon and into the evening. So we actually have this physical raising of air temperatures in these very densely developed urban environments. On the flip side of that, you know, the, the coolest spots in our cities tend to be those areas where trees are most concentrated. Trees act like big air conditioners and beach umbrellas. And so by uh, looking at these patterns of heat, we see that typically the hotter spots have very few trees, whereas the cooler spots tend to have very uh, high amounts of tree canopy. So at, at a kind of first principles level, the more trees you have, the cooler your cities, that particular area of the city is going to be. I love thinking about trees as giant beach umbrellas. That's lovely, even if they're not necessarily, you know, palm trees that you might associate with, with beaches. So let's kind of zoom in a little bit on your work then and about the, you know, specific location studies that you've done with trees sure. and urban heat. So again, just as kind of baseline understanding, could you talk a little bit for those who might not know about what redlining actually is and kind of describe what that historical practice was? Yeah, sure. So this whole study starts, you know, actually back in 2017, when we uh, assessed the 
strength of the urban heat island in Richmond, Virginia, and then followed up following summer in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, and then collaborator Vivek Shandas had uh, assessed heat islands in Portland, Oregon. And when we started to look at kind of like the populations that are exposed to the higher temperatures, it kept coming up that it was these historically black and brown communities with very limited resources, very low tree canopies, uh, very high amounts of impervious surfaces, differentially poor health outcomes. You know, it's, it, it just, you know, and, and the more we read about studies from other cities, you know, this kind of just consistent pattern was playing out in a lot of the literature. And what Vivek and I were, were surprised to find out is that while an individual city might dive into the individual planning processes that might have given rise to these disparities in their one given city, there was no lens about like, why is it that this is playing out across all cities the same way? And so borrowing on work from the University of Richmond Mapping Inequality Project, which digitized several hundreds of these uh, redlining maps, we, we asked the simple question, like, are these redlining maps associated with differential exposure to extreme heat? Now, what is a redlining map? In the 1930s, in response to kind of protect the housing market from a recession, the New Deal uh, basically allowed for these real estate assessors to go into individual cities all over the country, like 240 cities or something like that, and basically rate individual neighborhoods along a perceived spectrum of safety for financial investment related to real estate. So these are things like home uh, loans, mortgages, mortgage insurance, all those sorts of things that help families advance generationally in wealth. And so basically these assessors would rate a neighborhood along a grading system from A being best or the most secure for investment to uh, B to C all the way to D, which was the worst grade. And that was actually deemed hazardous for investment. These ratings were based on a color scheme as well. So there were A through D and they were each assigned a, a, a color. So A were given green outlines around their neighborhoods down to D-rated neighborhoods, which were given red lines. And so that's where that term redlining comes from, is from this practice of basically rating an entire neighborhood as unsafe for financial investment back in the 1930s and 40s. What would this have to do with exposure to extreme heat in black and brown communities? Well, these formerly redlined areas, when you look at the notes that the assessors were writing about the individuals that were living in those areas, in the note line of inhabitants. Here in Richmond, for example, in Jackson Ward, Newtown West, and Carver neighborhoods, historically black communities, descriptor in the inhabitants line was 95% Negro. The no other real details about that neighborhood uh, throughout the rest of the notes that the assessor had. Just a couple miles away in Windsor Farms, which is a very you know wealthy enclave still to this day, the type of inhabitants after their long-winded description of the type of rolling hills and beautiful trees and beautiful homes, was that the inhabitants were the best people. Basically, believe them when they show them, <laughs> you know, is one of the, the, predominantly these ratings were based along racial boundaries and not actually any sort of underlying financial evaluation. And you look at this from throughout the country, and each region is a little bit different. The redlined areas were predominantly immigrant communities and maybe not necessarily black or brown communities, but it was always a way to differentially 
keep individuals of a particular community in those areas while allowing for financial investment and advancement in these green-lined communities. So we looked at uh, extreme temperatures or summertime surface temperatures through the lens of these HOLC redlining maps, and we're able to show that these formerly redlined areas are about four and a half to five degrees Fahrenheit warmer during the summer than their non-redlined neighbors uh, in the present day. The redlining was just a way of securing these neighborhoods, basically like put it into law that these neighborhoods would retain these characteristics through time. So it didn't necessarily cause this differential exposure, but it certainly played a role in securing it as a, a law of the land until, you know, at least until the Housing Act 1968. But it still plays out even today um, as differential exposure to extreme heat. And locally here in Nashville too, these, these names won't mean anything to you, but they will to our local listeners. Um, in terms of redlining, areas like Green Hills and Bell Mead were categorized as best through these home loans and through this process. And then neighborhoods to the east, north, and south of downtown were labeled hazardous. So here in Nashville, you can definitely see those are also areas where, you know, you can see directly the differences in tree canopy cover. So you, you, you mentioned this a little already, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into it. Um, redlining, you know, technically this does not take place anymore, but the effects are still being felt today. So can you talk a little bit deeper about, you know, you, you've seen the differences in heat, but how does that relate to tree cover as well? Or how are these things all connected? Right. So um, as part of our analysis as well, we used national scale maps of impervious surface percentages and tree canopy percentages from the National Land Cover Database, which is a, an ongoing documentation of land use practices in the continental United States. And so by averaging not only the land surface temperatures in these redlining maps, but also looking at then what is the balance of those two, you know, the human versus the natural environment in these areas, we were able to show that in almost lockstep with the temperatures, there too was a preponderance of impervious surfaces in these red line districts and a you know, relative dearth of tree canopy. So there are fewer trees and more of these impervious surfaces, which help to describe and, and identify the differences in temperature. So it's not a surprise that you can quite literally see these um, land use practices as you walk through these neighborhoods and look at them in Google Maps, you know, almost every single city. And then, you know, now we see these things echo as not only environmental disparities like this, but financial socioeconomic disparities. There's lower home ownership, lower credit scores, lower home values in these formerly redlined areas. And now a, a burgeoning line of, of research has been into are there disproportionate health impacts in these different areas? And so several studies have come out recently in particular contexts from particular cities showing that uh, like in California, these formerly redlined areas experience higher rates of asthma cases uh, presenting to emergency departments and urgent care centers. A study in New York that just came out showed that these have higher rates of preterm birth uh, for new mothers and disproportionately in, for black mothers as well. The historical context of these formerly redlined areas serving as where a lot of the urban plans, particularly advanced where they would put interstate highways, these formerly redlined areas typically are in areas that might be exposed to higher levels of air pollution, which is playing out in several other recent new publications. So it really, you know, the heat is just one portion of 
a interconnected inequity that spans human health, socioeconomics, and you know the, what is known as the social determinants of health. Uh, it's really all facets of life are different in these areas than in the formerly green-lined areas. Do you find that that is something that people are surprised by when they learn about this work? Because in, in my experience in talking about these issues just out in the community, people seem to have a you know better understanding of maybe the social or the public health impacts of this practice, but maybe not as much the environmental impacts. But as your work shows, all of these things are interconnected. Does that surprise people? I think it absolutely does. The key surprising thing is the difference in trees. I think when people see that in a map or they see it in pictures, you know, we have these really great uh, examples from other cities and Richmond included uh, from the Climate Safe Neighborhoods Program from Groundwork USA that shows these kind of like very stark imagery of just like pictures merged in the middle of a street. And on one side of the image is a red line community and on the right, on the other side is a green line community. You can put yourself in both situations and really start to resonate with that lived experience about what it must be like to wake up and live your life in one or the other. And just how foundationally different the opportunities, the schools, just your whole experience of the world must be based on potentially on the types of you know, nefarious planning processes that were brought on by these redlining maps, you know, almost a hundred years ago. So I do think that this historical lens illuminates the disparities in such a way that the light bulb has started to go on a little bit more than when we were just looking at temperature differences or just looking at health disparities. The long-term historical inequity is certainly, I think, a powerful lens to show people and get them on board with, well, what do we do now? Absolutely. So what made you want to look into this more in depth in the first place? Was it, you know, you had this hypothesis, you noticed this pattern and wanted to take a further look and maybe what has also surprised you in this research? My interest in all of this stems from growing up in suburban Chicago, Illinois in the 90s. And so the like kind of the most famous American heat wave, if there is such a thing was one that befell the city of Chicago in 1995. It ended up killing, depending on the estimate that you look at, somewhere around 750 people. Temperatures soared above 110 for a couple days in a row. You know, nighttime temperatures didn't dip below 80, something like that. Just, just an absolutely horrendously out of character kind of heat wave for the city of Chicago. But for me, you know, growing up as a privileged white suburban you know, kid, I remember distinctly that weekend having a a family party in our backyard with all my cousins. We had slip and slides and baby pools and air conditioning inside and, you know, uh, plenty of watermelon and, and ice. I remember the ice cream truck came by and we like all ran up, you know, to go get it. And at the exact same moment, people just a few hours away or just a few miles away were dying you know, and reflecting on that level of privilege. And now reading, you know, Eric Kleinenberg's book, uh, Heat Wave, and watching a recent PBS special on it called Cooked Survival by Zip Code, really, you know, showed me that there is this question of vulnerability to climate change and preparedness for the future is so different, just within a few miles of one another. And I've just, I'm so curious about why that is and, and 
you know, because we know that these communities largely are lower income and lower resourced and all those sorts of things, they're disproportionately underrepresented in political process. So even the, you know, the fact now that we can use this information in the much the same way it was used as a roadmap for dem demolition and urban renewal and all that back 50 years ago, we can use it now for the next 50 years to direct and prioritize areas for interventions and investment and community projects that include their vision and voice for the first time. And so to me, uh, I wanted to deepen my understanding at a national scale to provide the kind of information that we were producing for our city in Richmond and many of my colleagues were producing for the uh, city of Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and the other places that we've performed this kind of uh, on-the-ground community science analysis. I wanted to provide that kind of historical lens for everyone. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately and unfortunately in some cases, you know, not every city had a redlining map. So in these cities that were not part of that, which basically they either fell below a certain population threshold, you know, there's still disparity and there's still work to be done to discover the reasons why and why not maybe it doesn't exist. So to me, it's exciting in this like kind of like time of reckoning to have this data set available, I think is really powerful. And I'd love to help get all of the immense amount of work that's left to do done. I definitely want to get to action steps and things that we can do, you know, with, with this information, you know, what can be done. But I also think the data collection methods are super interesting in this work, especially the hyper local focus. Could you describe some of your gadgets and citizen science and how you actually gathered this data? Right. So there, there's a couple of different ways that we can assess ur the strength of urban heat islands. So what was included in our paper on redlining was remotely sensed land surface temperature data. And what I mean by that is it's basically a, a satellite flying through space that takes a picture of the Earth's surface every couple of weeks. And so we can look back through time and see how these land surface temperatures have changed through time and how intense they are, especially during uh, the summer months, which is what the, that paper relied on. But other work that we've done relies instead on not so much stuff flying through space, but really gets down on the ground where people experience temperature. Um, you can think of it as the difference, like, I, I mean, I, I, wear, I wear glasses, corrective lenses, and it's kind of the difference between taking your glasses on and off and looking at somebody in the face. Like if I take my glasses off, and I know listeners can't see this, but if I take my glasses off and I look at my uh, computer screen, I can tell that there are two people, but I don't know like what color your eyes are. I can't tell like, you know, anything detail about your face or your hair or my own face. But if I put on my glasses, then I'm able to make much more detailed determinations about the features of your face. It's much the same way with the difference between these land surface temperatures, which are taken from space and the kind of work that we do on an individual city by city basis. The uh, community science projects that we do at a city by city level is really focused on uh, like a leadership organization. In my case it, here in Richmond, it was the Science Museum of Virginia and other cities like Boston, the Museum of Science Boston has done this. Uh, but then in other cities, it's been like the city sustainability office or a community nonprofit like Groundwork USA um, that has gathered together volunteers representing a bunch of different boundary organizations might be interested in understanding how health, heat, climate disparity plays out in their city. So uh, here in Richmond, for example, we had the Science Museum as kind of the coordinating lead organization, but we had the two um, local universities included, uh, researchers and students from those uh, from labs at those universities, and then uh, a nonprofit called Groundwork RVA, which is part of the Groundwork USA network, 
the city's sustainability office and a meteorologist newspaper. So uh, with those organizations represented, we kind of had this really neat cross section of all these different interests and missions in the city of Richmond. So we've replicated this now and scaled it up to almost a national scale. So my colleague Vivek and his company, Kappa Strategies, is now playing this out. I think 15 campaigns were conducted this summer and they're all complete now. So we're so excited to see what they do. But the basic nature of it is to recruit volunteers, you all get together and then you put really sophisticated, but ultimately pretty um, self-explanatory and highly accessible uh, thermometers sit, sitting outside of a car window. So on the dry, or passenger side window of a car, it's this like, you can imagine if it, for listeners, it's like a car flag uh, from like a sports team that, you know, an enthusiastic sports fan might have coming out of their passenger side window. But instead of a flag on it, there's a hole at the top and inside of the hole, there's a very sensitive um, temperature wire that's basically reacts sends electrical signals based on the air temperature that it's sensing. And so these uh, temperature sensors along with GPS units give us very detailed descriptions of how temperature varies as these cars traverse the city in all these different places at once. So send out 15, 20 cars all at once during a heat wave at three different times during the day. And you get this extremely detailed understanding of how heat changes from, from time period to time period and where is warm in the morning, warm in the afternoon, really warm in the evening or, you know, any combination between that. So it's really neat. It's a people powered climate resilience exercise that just about anybody can do now, thanks to the work that we've done over the last several years. It's very cool. I love seeing the, the photos of the volunteers in action with those gadgets on the car as well. It's really neat. Thanks to the supporters of the Cumberland River Compact who helped bring our podcast to listeners. We would also like to thank Nissan for their support of the Route Nashville campaign. Nissan enriches lives in the communities where they operate. As a lead campaign sponsor, Nissan supports community tree plantings, helping the campaign reach its goal for an equitable tree canopy in Nashville. In addition to maybe the city of Nashville thinking about bringing this work here locally and performing some of that hyperlocal data collection ourselves, what are some other things we can do, you know, with this knowledge of these connections and with the findings of your work? I think people are always hungry for action steps, hearing about, you know, distressing news like this. What can we do about it? I think there there are different levels of things that we can be doing about it. So, you know, kind of long range ideal solution, which will take a long time to pan out simply because they take a long time to mature would be to, you know, assess viability of, you know, a tree canopy uh, increase for particular areas of these cities. A baby tree is like a small beach umbrella. You know, it takes, it takes 20 or 30 years for a tree to turn into a group of, you know, air conditioners and beach umbrellas. Um, so, you know, I think I've seen some really innovative stuff from American Forests, uh, a group that has advocated for this tree equity program. I think it's also really interesting. The city of Chicago made community benefits agreements with workforce development in 
these formerly redlined areas of Chicago to actually create green workforce jobs around these tree plantings and green infrastructure and these kinds of like nature-based solutions to the heat island effect. Um, I've also seen some really innovative stuff come out of the city of Phoenix where they had these community-driven design workshops where they actually bring in people from the neighborhoods that are disproportionately affected by this and ask them, you know, what do you want to do about this? Same with the city of Philadelphia. They have this program called Park in a Truck. They engage with the community where they're at and ask, based on our resources, you design a solution that fits with your desire and your vision of what your neighborhood wants to look like. And so then that gives that kind of buy-in, that almost like stewardship that's required of maintaining these sorts of green spaces and, and investments that seek to ameliorate the heat. I also think that there's some kind of low-hanging fruit things that cities can do is to understand where are people exposed to these extreme temperatures and what are some very like easy interventions that can exist. So for example, we do know that many times these communities that are disproportionately affected by heat are also largely dependent on public transportation. So if they have to walk to the bus and stand at a bus stop that doesn't have some sort of shade structure in the middle of the summer, this is one of those places and times when they'll be exposed to very severe temperatures, potentially you know, exacerbating existing respiratory issues, whatever it may be. But like making sure that all of your, your bus network, it's like, this is where heat and transit intersect, you know, transportation is like providing a shelter, you know, is something that that's not a tree that's not going to take 30 years to produce shade. You can quite literally create, throw shade on a bus stop, you know, in an afternoon. Then there are some other things like making sure that community cooling centers are uh, in places that people trust and want to visit. So there's like big scale infrastructural changes like planting a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand trees. But then there are these very like targeted interventions that you can do. And then including the, the, the community in the conversation is like a no brainer. And in this, you know, age now that the kind of racial reckoning that's going on, we have to center these communities in the decision-making process. So ultimately it's like, there's a whole menu of options and as organizations with power and privilege to cede some of that power and privilege to the community directly to allow them to take control of these projects. That's what, at least in my, my opinion, that's how cities can, can start to really make headway on this very, very quickly. And yeah, just to give you an idea a little bit too about what's going on here locally with some of that, through the Root National Campaign, you're, we're looking to plant 500,000 trees in Davidson County by 2050. So we're planting everywhere, but with a specific focus on creating an equitable canopy distribution. So we have focus areas for plantings um, that we determined using data points such as what's the current canopy coverage, what's the rate of hospitalizations due to asthma, in these areas, what is the average daytime surface temperature? So putting that all together, we have some focus areas. And for the most part, they do also align with areas that were historically redlined. Um, I was glad to hear you say tree equity. We're, we're trying our best with the, uh, yeah. with the Root National Campaign to get that going as well. Well, that's fascinating. And, uh, and thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that strategy needs to be replicated everywhere. For example, along one block, that all of the street trees had died or been cut down or whatever over, over, over the decades for one reason or another, gave out a small little city grant called a Love Your Block Grant 
one of my colleagues, you know, had this really beautiful design of here's what this tree, what this specific species would look like as soon as it's planted. And then in 40 years, here's what it looks like in just like hand-drawn illustrations and gave it out to the people along this block so that they could choose the species that they wanted. And they could even say, they could say no to a tree as well, which, you know, I think some interesting findings from tree planting programs in other cities, you know, found high levels of distrust between the organizations seeking to do the planting and the people that they were seeking to, to, to benefit. Um, so it, it, I mean, these sorts of things that's, again, it goes back to that idea of like including these communities in the decision-making sets it up for a potentially more success than it might be otherwise. So I'm really glad to hear that the data-driven decision-making has been central to the project in Nashville. I, I suspect that that will be largely a, a model that others will want to follow around the country. Right. And this emphasis on the community driving the decisions as well kind of aligns with, with another project of, of the campaign with our Neighborhood Planting Captain Program, which the idea is, like you mentioned, kind of on a, on a block level and again, a hyper-local focus, um, recruiting block captains or neighborhood captains who are awarded a certain number of trees for their neighborhood. They live in the neighborhood in one of these targeted areas, and then they are going out, maybe knocking door to door with a mask on in these days, or go, getting on the next door app, getting on Facebook and recruiting their neighbors for trees. So quick, quick plug for our listeners that that program is still going on and we will have applications opening up within this 2020-2021 planting season as well. So just wanted to sneak that in there as well. So thanks for setting me up for that. So with these you know, different levels of action items that you, you mentioned that we can take, what do you find is really helpful messaging to really get this to sink in with people as something that we really need to prioritize and focus on? Climate change, of course, you know, people hear that all the time, but how can we make that really sink in on a local, local level with neighborhood heat and with trees? Well, I think largely it depends on the audience that's listening. And I think that is an exercise in true, true good science communication is knowing who the audience is that you're seeking to, to address and connect with and understand where are they in this conversation? Where, you know, where does the power lie? Where has historically the power been for any decision-making regardless of it being climate or otherwise? And so I find for communities that are currently living this reality, very much a acknowledgement and reckoning with the hist history is so critical to even starting the conversation. The fact of the matter is that these folks live this every day. It can feel very, to them, very extractive. And to me, I've noticed, you know, and, and I even feel that way sometimes about the work itself is without being able to do anything about it, I'm just pointing more fingers at the fact that this disparate reality exists. And so, you know, for the community, I find that, um, you know, like what you said, these kind of block captains, trusted voices in the community is so important from the perspective of people with power and privilege, acknowledging that and being honest about the history behind these things is so critical and acknowledging lived experience of the folks that live in these areas and recognizing that they're coming at this from a very different perspective and level of, of power and privilege. On the flip side, you know, Communities with traditionally more power and privilege tend to also be more already aligned in some ways, depends on, you know, a lot of things, you know, tend to be more aligned with conservation, 
you know, and recreational opportunities and like those sorts of things. So I found in some ways the conversation around access to green spaces, green infrastructure and the health of our river and those sorts of things tend to resonate a little bit more with communities that have traditionally enjoyed more privilege and power. So it, it, again, it's, it's really a discussion of like, which, what audience are you seeking to engage with? Where are they coming to this conversation from? And know and acknowledge that how you're going to frame it will be different based on the community that you're seeking to engage and be willing to make mistakes uh, <laughs> because I know that I have and I've learned a lot from colleagues about how to better uh, communicate just what I mean. And I think that um, you know, the Science Museum of Virginia's work now is centering on you know, figuring out how do we, you know, in these like engagement opportunities, how do we actually infuse the science into the lived experience? And how does the science benefit the missions of those community organizers, of those trusted voices, so that it's not, we're not saying that our mission of like climate resilience is the thing that you should be also caring about as well. It is where does, where does my desire for community resilience to climate change intersect and amplify your mission for a healthier, more vibrant community locally? So, because ultimately I think when you strip them all down to the base level, I've heard we want a safe, a neighborhood that's safe to walk around in that's beautiful and connected to other places and jobs. And like, who doesn't want a neighborhood like that? When, when we look at that kind of bare bones description, then we can start putting in the dictionary that we share around those concepts. And so what are the mitigation strategies that can benefit a, what, what would be recognized as a beautiful, safe block to walk around on? That's a climate resilient block to me, you know, wide sidewalk that's buffered with a, you know, stormwater mitigation practice and some trees. That's beautiful. And so we just, we need to recognize that we're all coming at this with a different, in some ways, dictionary. We need to agree. We need to acknowledge that there's been an imbalance of power and privilege for many years before this and kind of move forward with a shared dictionary and uh, vision. I'm hearing a major theme overall of interconnectedness and the fact that all of these things do intersect. We can have beautiful neighborhoods and cooler neighborhoods and guess what? It's the, you know, some of the same strategies to achieve those goals and those ends. So that's, that's nice to hear. I think that there is, and we've seen through this pandemic and, you know, a lot of these movements around new urbanism and things like that, that have been traditionally very much dominated by you know, white male figures that these, these words that we use, these buzzwords around climate resilience, like green infrastructure and like bike lanes, alternative transportation, those sorts of things don't necessarily resonate the same way with the communities that we truly seek to empower with these programs. So um, I'm still struggling, I'm still learning, but I'm so enthusiastic about figuring out how I can help amplify and empower uh, along the way. Is that what's next for you? I was wondering, you know, where this research or these findings are taking you next? Uh, questions abound. Um, so I think what's really interesting about our paper is that these regions of the country have different trends and trajectories. And so what is it about any particular city that made them have no difference in summertime land surface temperatures? What's going on there? Why does, you know, Portland and Denver and all these places have such large differences? 
I think that those are just like like individual scale questions that basically people could ask for you know a, a generation. Then I think another another thing that I'm curious about is like so now we know heat is disparate. What else can we reliably reconstruct with new statistical methods to understand exposure to other climate stressors? A lot of investment right now in many of our cities is going into fixing aging stormwater infrastructure. Stormwater mitigation strategies in many ways accomplish heat mitigation strategies. So how can we, how can we establish that there's these shared stressors among these formerly redlined areas that strengthen the case to funnel resources into the community organizations that they're seeking to serve? Working on a few follow-up studies related to flooding, air quality, water quality, and precipitation that should, you know, substantiate or refute additional stressors in these areas. But it's really a rapidly evolving and, and really, um, I just love watching all this information come out. But really, the thing that I'm most thrilled about is being involved here in Richmond in the, in the long-term planning that's going on right now. So we're building parks uh, for the first time since 1970. The city is going to establish like a new major new city park with a lens towards redlining and uh, climate equity, which is huge. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's different levels of things. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled that um, people are paying attention and I hope that I can just continue to uh, help and be useful where I can be. Lots more to be done. We should go get started. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> I, can't wait, I, agree. I can't wait to hear your additional work and, and yeah. what, what comes next. I look forward to it as well. <laughs> What's something you would want people to take away from your paper or this work or even this conversation? You know, if they're hearing about these connections for the first time, you know, connecting these dots, what would you want listeners to tell their friends after hearing this conversation? That the decisions that we make today may echo for hundreds of years. What the redlining maps really teach me is that a decision made almost a century ago is still having impacts today. So any decision that we make today may have reverberating effects for the next century. Let's make sure that they're inclusive with an eye towards justice and the best time that we could have done to get started was yesterday. <laughs> so we are determining history today that could play out for a century. And I think that that, if you start to look at that kind of generational lens on your day-to-day -day life, so much more about the world around you becomes visible. Thank you. So we like to ask people for recommendation. So just to kind of wrap things up here, would you have a book or a podcast or a series that you would recommend people check out? I know you mentioned earlier Heatwave and Cooked, which I believe are documentaries. So what would you leave people here with as a recommendation? There's two podcasts, basically, that a book and a movie, all that kind of like play into this. So those four things, any, people can choose whatever they want. Perfect. We will make sure to share the links with that as well. So thank you so much for your time today and for chatting. Really enjoyed the conversation. 
Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I hope your listeners find it useful and, you know, and, and uh, it advances your work there in Nashville. Let's go plant some trees. Do it. Thank you to Dr. Jeremy Hoffman for joining us for River Talks. You can help Root Nashville reach its goal of planting 500,000 trees across Nashville by volunteering to plant a tree or becoming a neighborhood planting captain. With your help, we can create a more equitable tree canopy across Nashville. More information about how to get involved is at rootnashville.org. If you liked this episode, check out our past episodes of River Talks, including an interview with Dr. Carolyn Finney on systemic racism and the environment. Want to add your thoughts about this week's episode? Send us an email at rivertalks at cumberlandrivercompact.org or leave us a voice message at 615-933-8837. Until next time, I'm Katherine Price and hope you can join us for more River Talks. Thank you.